Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo Podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in His plan for your life. Now let's get into today's content. Amen. Okay, now as we cross... Uh, from 1 Samuel into 2 Samuel, we are also crossing into a new series, and there's an overlap. And so tonight officially is the last installment in Transitions, and it's also the first installment in Established. And so as we uh, cross into this book and we see now the the great transition of David from preparation to now purpose, uh, we go, we transition into um, his establishing. And so So uh, that's our prayer, that God would bring us from the place of being prepared to the place of being established. Uh, And and so uh, we do that. We read verse 1, and um, and it's an interesting thing that that happened. Um, When we first moved into our house, it's been just over 10 years now, um, we discovered that we had extremely hard water. And when I say that, I'm not exaggerating at all. There was like mineral icicles hanging from the fixtures. I mean, it was like there was more white than chrome. It was really, really bad. And I remember my father-in-law, he uh, saw it and he said, you know, I have a water softener that's no longer in service because we switched over to town water. It's a really good one. You're welcome to it. I said, bring it down. So I installed this water softener and we had it in service for about a day and the water laughed at the water softener. It was like, yeah, right. Okay. And, and it died the second day. So it worked for a day and then it died and uh, not having any other kind of choice and, and just saying, well, let me see what's wrong with this thing. If I can fix it. Um, I, I, I determined that, that the timer motor, the thing that kind of makes it um, cycle, that it had gone bad, that it wasn't working. And so I, I, I pulled it off, and it's really this little thing about the size of a golf ball. It's just a silver disc, and it has like one little gear, uh, really about half the size of a penny that just sticks out of it. And so I grabbed it, and I tried to turn that little gear, and it was just frozen, stuck solid, like it wouldn't move at all, no matter how hard. I mean, just really, and I was like, okay, that's what's wrong with it. Um, But I wanted to fix it because that's just, to me, that's a a pleasure, you know, beating it, you know. So so I I, I tried to see if I could take it apart, but the thing was like factory sealed together and the whole thing. But there was this little tiny window uh, where you could actually look inside, you know. So I kind of cleaned it off a little bit and I looked inside and, and it's just like gears like a clock. There's all these little things inside. It's very complex, you know. So I took and I, again, tried to turn the little wheel the gear while I'm looking into this window. And what I'm seeing is that as I try to turn it, there's actually all this movement going on inside this little timer motor. I mean, the thing was spinning like crazy. The gears were moving quickly. And, and what I realized is that, that, that it wasn't frozen like I thought that it was. It was just geared in such a way that the tiniest movement on the outside moved everything rapidly on the inside or flip it the other way, what was actively happening under the surface only produced a very small amount of movement outside on the surface. And I remember just having like a spiritual moment standing there in my basement holding this little tiny water softener motor. And and I really kind of sensed the Lord showing me what I kind of already knew and what we know is that sometimes it seems like things are stuck. 
It seems, it seems like we're stuck, like things aren't moving, things aren't happening. Our life has been frozen. God forgot about us. He left us out. The, the, the water of the Holy Spirit laughed at our desire to, to be a part of the whole system. And, and things just aren't happening. It's not moving. But the reality is things are happening sometimes at a rapid pace. Sometimes they're happening in such a complex and intricate and, and, and quick way that we can't understand because we only see the surface. And so we think things are stuck and things are actually moving on our behalf. And such has been the case with David. The last time we saw David, when we looked at him, we saw that it's been five to 10 years since Samuel first came and dumped oil on his head and basically told him that God had a plan for his life. And, and David kind of then began this uphill climb trying to work his way towards the will of God for his life. And, and the visit from Samuel was like a distant memory. I mean, it's no small thing when the prophet of the nation comes to you personally and dumps oil on your head. That doesn't happen every day. And even though David wasn't specifically told what that was for, it was very significant. But because of the difficulty of the preparation process, David became discouraged and he kind of forgot about that a long time ago. And when we last left David, he had spent a year and a half kind of in a backslidden state, okay? He is cleaning up the mess that he made in the whole thing. He had been living a double life. He was living in a place he shouldn't be living. He was reaping the consequences of a year and a half of being backslidden. And he was probably thinking to himself that he's added a decade of earthly purgatory to the progress of God's plan for him because of what he's now in the middle of there down in Ziklag. But what David didn't know is that at the very moment, at the very time that he was regathering himself spiritually, God was in the process of moving his status from pending to fulfilled or from preparation to complete. It was happening even though David didn't know it. He was down in Ziklag. Meanwhile, Saul and all of his family that would be competent to take over for him as king were being killed in the battle, paving the way for David now to become the king, even as God had said, okay? Now, notice what it says in verse one, the first few words. It says, now it came to pass. Now it came to pass? You know, David's thinking, now, after all this time? And, and watch what happens in verse two. Verse two, the first few words. It says, it came even to pass. And I love how the Holy Spirit repeats himself in verse one and then again in verse two. He says, now it came to pass. Now it even came to pass. Isn't it kind of a funny thing how, how we as human beings sometimes are surprised when God fulfills his promises, right? Like he gives us these, these things that he says he's gonna do for us, the, the promises that he gives us in his word, that he's going to work things out for our family and for our future, that he's going to provide, that he's going to sustain, that he's going to keep us. And, and we go through like these, these crazy times where God is testing us and teaching us and stretching us. And there's pain involved and suffering and learning and growing and all this stuff. And then God comes through and he keeps his promise in a way that we could never expect. And we're like, oh my goodness, God kept his promise. 
he actually did what he said he was going to do. And that's kind of the tone of the text here. It came to pass. It even came to pass. <laughs> like It happened. And listen, I don't know what it is that God is doing in your life in this season right now. I don't know what promise you're waiting on. I don't know what pressure you find yourself under. But here's what I can tell you, is that whatever it is that God is bringing you towards, it will come to pass. Because the Bible says that there is a time for every season under heaven. And sometimes your life can feel like that, that water softener motor that seems like it's stuck, like it's frozen, okay? <laughs> but it's not. God is doing things in ways that you can't see. Now, I understand the human part of us that is surprised when God's promises are actually fulfilled. Because I, I do the same thing. Like when God comes through, I'm like, wow. Like God, it's like, yeah, I know you, but wow, you really, you did it. You came through. And I understand why we react that way. And here's the reason. is because sometimes when we're in the ascent, or that is we're moving towards what God is doing in our life, that the pressure and the difficulty of it feels a lot more like resistance than resurrection. It feels like God is actually pushing us down and, and that there's like this pain that's involved. And sometimes we can think that, well, God, you're against me in it. He's not against us. The Bible says that he works all things together for our good. And so the difficulties that we're, we're feeling and the pressure that we face when we're going through things is God preparing us for the time when his word will come to pass. There is a time, the scripture says, to every purpose under heaven. And when time and purpose come together, you're going to see God move in a way that you weren't expecting, but it will be pleasing to you, okay? So chapter one represents for us the time of transition from preparation to now David is going to be anointed king. Let's read from verses two through eight and see how it unfolds. It says this. It says that it came even to pass on the third day that behold, a man came out of the camp from Saul with his clothes torn and earth upon his head. And so it was when he came to David that he fell to the earth and did obeisance. And David said unto him, from whence comest thou? And he said unto him, out of the camp of Israel am I escaped. And David said unto him, how went the matter? I pray thee, tell me. And he answered that the people are fled from the battle and many of the people also are fallen and dead and Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead also. So there had been battle. Saul and his sons died. David is now hearing word of this for the first time down in the southern part of the land. And David said unto the young man that told him, how do you know that Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead? And the young man that told him, said, as I happened by chance upon Mount Gilboa, behold, Saul leaned upon his spear and lo, the chariots and the horsemen followed hard after him. And when he looked behind him and saw me and called unto me, and I answered, here am I. And he said unto me, who are you? And I answered him, I am an Amalekite. Now let's pause right there for just a minute before we uh, unfold the rest of what happens. He identifies himself to David as the son of a foreigner. And then he says who? He says that I am an Amalekite. Now the Amalekites 
in the Bible, they keep showing up from time to time. And the first time we meet Amalek and find out who he is, it's recorded in Exodus chapter 17. And the timing in the history is right after the nation of Israel has been delivered from Egypt by Moses through the Red Sea. I think probably most of us are familiar with what God did bringing his people through the Red Sea. And after the congregation of God's people came through the Red Sea, they were in a very weakened and vulnerable condition. They were hungry. They were thirsty. They were nomadic. They were off, uh, off balance. Everything was, was chaotic in their lives because of the situation that they were in. And as they were moving through and figuring out what God was going to do next, it tells us in Exodus 17 that Amalek, who was the head of this tribe of people that we call the Amalekites, that he saw a weakened, vulnerable Israel, and he sucker punched them. And so he gathers his people, and he comes from behind where the weak, where the children were, where the slow pokes were. He came from behind, and he attacked Israel in their weakened and vulnerable state. And so Moses hears about it, sees what's going on, and he calls Joshua, Joshua the young man who was over the military. And he says to Joshua, he says, listen, you gather the men of war, anyone that can fight, and you go and you resist and protect our people and fight against Amalek, and I'm going to go and take Aaron and her, and we're going to go up on that hill, that mountain right there, and we're going to pray and ask God to help you. And so Joshua takes the men, they go down into the valley and fight. Moses goes up on the hill with Aaron and her, and it tells us in Exodus 17 that whenever Moses' hands were raised, a symbol of his praying, his intercession, it says that Joshua would gain the upper hand and would be defeating, beating Amalek. But when Moses' hands became weary and they started to lag, then Amalek would get stronger and he would begin to win and Joshua would be beaten back. And so they realized what was going on. And so Aaron and her, who went with Moses, one got on one side, one on the other, and they propped Moses's arms up in the air and held them there until Joshua defeated Amalek and Israel was successfully defended against this sucker punch, this ambush of Amalek. That's what happened in the battle. But what's interesting about it is the declaration that God makes concerning the Amalekites after the fact. In Exodus chapter 17, verse 14, listen to what God says about this whole ordeal. He says this, the Lord said unto Moses, write this for a memorial in a book and rehearse it in the ears of Joshua for I will utterly put out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. But then he goes on to say that Moses built an altar called the name of it Jehovah Nisi, for he said, it's verse 16, because the Lord has sworn, listen, that the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Now, I want you to just think about that declaration that God just made about Amalek, because it almost sounds inconsistent. The first thing that God said is that he is going to blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. That sounds final. 
But then he says, two verses later, that he will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Meaning that, yes, Amalek will be blotted out, but not yet. Not right away. And so we see Amalek showing up over and over again, and he is always an aggressor. He is always an enemy. He is always hostile to the people of God. Now, okay, Amalek represents in the Bible, because of this, what we read in Exodus and what we see of Amalek in the Bible, Amalek represents something. And I want to remind you, I want to quote a verse to you. It's Romans chapter 15, verse 4. Listen to what Romans 15, 4, Paul says it. He says this, for whatsoever things were written before were written for our learning that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. In other words, what he's saying is that what God has already spoken, God is still speaking through that in our lives today. And Amalek has a message for us. Amalek represents something, okay? Amalek represents one of the three great enemies for the person who's given their life to God. One of those enemies is the fallen world system. That's a study for another time. A second of those enemies is the devil himself, Lucifer, the tempter, Satan, the dragon, the, the one who is the adversary, the one who comes against us. We know that the devil is real. We know that he's against us, but there's a third enemy. There's one more in the Bible, and this is the Benedict Arnold. This enemy is the one that you don't suspect to be an enemy. This one is the traitor, the unsuspected enemy, and the Bible calls it by the name the flesh, the flesh. It's what Sigmund Freud called the self, the self-life or this fallen, carnal, fleshly, sin-infected self-nature. It is the third great enemy of you and I. Do you know that you're your own worst enemy? Have you ever felt like you're your own worst enemy? Sometimes you are. Sometimes we are, okay? Because there is a traitor that lives inside of us. And here's why. Because our fallen natural self is attracted to, and it has an affection for, and it has an attachment to what is destructive to us. Now, maybe I'm the only one here that's willing to admit that, but it's the truth whether you like it or not, is that we are attracted and attached to, and we have an affection for things that destroy us. I love how the apostle Paul describes his own battle with himself. If you read Romans chapter six, it's described so amazingly. He basically says, I hate what I do and I love what I don't find myself having strength to do. Essentially, I find myself resisting what's right and running towards what's wrong. Does anybody else have that fight? Anybody else have that struggle? I find that I resist what I know is right and I run towards what I know is wrong. That is what our flesh does. You say, well, how do we know or why is Amalek then a picture of the flesh or the self or the fallen nature? Here's why. Three reasons, okay? And you could just look at what happened with Amalek and Exodus and you understand it perfectly. Number one is because like Amalek, 
Our flesh sucker punches us in the vulnerability of our youth. Okay, just like Israel, when they came out, they were a young, vulnerable, defenseless nation. And Amalek came in and they didn't expect it and took them out when they were weak. And that's exactly what happens with our flesh. When we're just young, before we're established, before we have the ability to resist or to fight, the flesh comes in and attacks us from behind. I remember being five years old and being shown things that no five-year-old should see. I wasn't prepared for that. I didn't have the defense mechanisms for it. I didn't understand the destructive nature of it. It was a sucker punch. It did something to me even at a young age. It happens. We're exposed to things. We're given things that we shouldn't have. I remember being a freshman in high school, and that's actually old for some people, but that's how old I was. And I was in high school, and I was hanging out with some seniors, and we were singing. We were in chorus together, and, and, and they were singing the song, What Do You Do With a Drunken Sailor? And they changed the word and said, What Do You Do With a Drunken Tenor? And then they looked at me and said, You're going to find out Friday night. And I did, you know, but I was too young. I didn't understand. I couldn't handle the sucker punch that that was at that age. And and that's what happens. I have seen many of the people that I grew up with and and the things that the flesh was, was used to destroy and do in their lives. It's grieving. And that's what the flesh does. It sucker punches us in the vulnerability of our youth. The second reason Amalek represents the flesh is because it keeps showing up. I don't know if you have that problem too, but your flesh won't go away, you know, and you think you beat something and you think you got past something. And then there it is again, three chapters later, and you're going, I thought we were done with this, but from generation to generation, there the flesh is again. And here's the reason why is because you can't get away from you yet. And the third reason why Amalek is a symbol of the flesh in the Bible is because if left undefeated, he will destroy all. And the truth for you and I is that if our flesh goes undefeated, unchecked, if it is allowed to live, then it will relentlessly pursue until it destroys everything that we are. There's one more component in Amalek's history that I must share before we move forward, and that is this. Is that way back in 1 Samuel 15 about 17 chapters ago in our study. The prophet Samuel came to Saul and he said, Saul, God has something he wants you to do. And Saul said, here I am, send me. And Samuel said to Saul, I remember, God says, what Amalek did to Israel when they first came out of Egypt. And so you, Saul, are the man that I have chosen to go and wipe out the Amalekites that the word spoken by Moses might be fulfilled that I will blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. God said, I'm going to blot out the memory. And then he said, but Saul, you're the man that I'm going to use to do it. And if you guys were with us back when we studied chapter 15, you know what happened. Saul almost obeyed what God said. Saul almost brought back, uh, you know, put forth, put out the memory of Amalek from under heaven, but he kept some of the innocent, some of the best, some of the substance. He left it alive. Why is that important? Why is that, that, that uh, critical in the whole thing? Okay. Because 
Because Saul didn't do it. It didn't happen in chapter 15. And, and the reason it didn't happen is not because God didn't supply the power for it to happen. It's because God wanted to use Saul and Saul didn't do it. And it was to be a partnership. It was to be in tandem, okay? Now, listen, technically, by the time we get to 2 Samuel chapter 1, there should be no more Amalekites. They should be gone, but they're not because Saul didn't do the job, okay? What does all this have to do with us? Here's what, is that when a person, when you and I, when we give our life to Jesus Christ, the Bible calls that regeneration or being born again. I kind of don't like that term, even though it's right out of the Bible, just because of the stigma that some people have given it. But essentially what happens is that Jesus himself comes into our life, and we are linked with God. We are made one with God again, and we become new inside. That's why it's called being born again. Jesus comes in, he creates a new person. Paul says, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, he says, if any man be in Christ, that's any human, then he or she is a new creation. Old things are passed away. All things become new. God does something new inside of us. His spirit becomes linked with our person and he gives us a new name. That's what Jesus says. I'm going to give you a new name, which represents a new nature. And so the nature of Jesus is imparted to us by the person of his Holy Spirit when we come to him by faith. But that creates an inner conflict because the old me the fallen self me is still alive and it's still in here. And thus an inner conflict begins because now there's a battle between the old carnal selfish me and the new Christ-like spirit of Jesus that's in me. And both of them are fighting within me for control of my mind, my will, and my behavior. And there's a battle over the two. That's what Paul describes in Romans 6 when he says, I want to do this, but I find myself doing that and I don't know why and I'm so wretched, but who's going to help me in this whole thing? In Galatians chapter 5, he says that the spirit envies against the flesh and the flesh against the spirit. There's a power struggle going on inside of every single one of us over who's going to have control of our life, whether it's one or the other. And so, Galatians 5, Romans 6 through 8, much of the New Testament describe this conflict. And much of the New Testament is written to teach us how to recognize what in me belongs to which nature. And then admonishes me to obey and live after the Spirit of God in me. Okay? Now, how do we do that? Romans chapter 8, verse 13 says this. It says that if you live after the flesh, you will die. But if you through the spirit do mortify or crucify or kill the desires or the deeds of the body, the flesh, then you shall live. Did you catch the how in that verse? He says, if you through the spirit do it, you bring God in and then yield to the spirit's way and choose to use the power that he's given you to do what you know you should rather than what you shouldn't. Okay, now listen. When you and I, and I didn't say if, I said when, because we all fail and fall short of this. 
But when you and I don't live after the Spirit and we give way to the flesh, the flesh has a way of strengthening itself against the power of the Spirit in our life and it grabs a hold of our life and then there are consequences. Okay, so what does the Bible say those consequences are? It says if we sow to the wind, we will reap the whirlwind, right? If you, if you sow to the flesh, Paul says you will reap corruption, okay? We know a law of nature is that you always reap more of what you sow. And the Bible says that whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. And so when we sow to our flesh, the flesh grows and it gets even stronger and ultimately it will choke us out. That's what it means when it says in Romans 8.13 that if you live after the flesh, you will die. Okay, are you guys all still with me? Good, okay. Here's the point, is that Saul, King Saul, his failure to slay the Amalekites was the smaller failure of the call of God for him to crucify his own flesh. And that which Saul did not kill when he was strong, the Amalekites, first weakened him and then killed him when he was weak. And the same thing will be true to any one of us that is called by God to, through the Spirit, mortify the deeds of the flesh, but we compromise and let it live when we are strong and when we are weak, it will grow and it will dominate and it will kill us. What will happen with this Amalekite that David identifies in verse eight? Watch this, verse nine, back in Second Samuel. It says that he said unto me again, stand, I pray thee upon me and slay me for anguish has come upon me because my life is yet whole in me. So listen to what the, Am the Amalekite says. So I stood upon him and slew him because I was sure that he could not live after that he was fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the bracelet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here unto my Lord. Listen, that which Saul failed to kill when he was called to ultimately came back and killed him. And that will always be the case when God says mortify and we say compromise that something will come back and bite you. Do you notice that not only did, did it kill David, I mean Saul, but it says that he took the crown from off his head. Did you catch that? Yeah. The Apostle Paul says that we, we labor right now in God's kingdom and, and we fight in the spiritual battle and we move forward in, in the face of the pain and the suffering and the uphill climb that it is. We fight for the reason of obtaining an eternal crown. Paul said, I fought the good fight. I have kept the faith. I finished my race. And he says that there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge has made for me, forged for me and for all those that have loved his appearing. But then Paul gives this warning. He says, beware, let no man take your crown. And not only did Saul lose his life because he failed. And we know that it wasn't just the Amalekites. Saul was a man who just obeyed whatever his flesh told him to do. And it cost him not only his life, but it cost him his crown. And it says that he took his bracelets. What's that? That's what's precious. And I want you to just think in your own life, what's precious to you in your life? And here's what you need to know tonight, is that if you don't crucify that flesh, that like Amalek rises up and won't go away through the power that God has given you, 
not only will it ultimately cost your life at some point, but you will lose what's precious to you. And there are so many that have done it that can testify and say, amen. That's what the flesh does. That's what the Amalekite does. It slays the flesh. That's what happened. Well, watch what happens to the Amalekite in verse 11. It says, Then David took hold on his clothes and tore them, and likewise all the men that were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they were fallen by the sword. And David said unto the young man that told him, Whence art thou? And he said, I am the son of a stranger and a Malachite. And David said unto him, How wast thou not afraid to stretch forth your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? And David called one of the young men and said, Go near and fall upon him. And he smote him that he died. So David was willing to do what Saul wasn't. And David said unto him, Your blood be upon your head, for your mouth has testified against you, saying, I have slain the Lord's anointed. So David does uh, kill this Amalekite. Now, when we get into verse 17, we're going to see David's first act. Now, the first thing that David does on the other side of learning of Saul's death. He is not king yet. In, in, the, in the eyes of man or under the covenant or anointing of man. But what is the first thing that David does? It says this, that David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and over Jonathan, his son. Now I'm going to read it from 18 through 27, and then we'll, we'll pick apart pieces of it. Watch this. Pay attention. Verse 18. Also, notice it's in parentheses. Also, he bade them teach the children of Judah. That's the kids that were a part of his family and extended family, his tribe. The use of the bow. Behold, it is written in the book of Jasher. End of parentheses. Verse 19 begins the lamentation. The beauty of Israel is slain upon thy high places. How are the mighty fallen? Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew, neither let there be rain upon you, nor fields of offering. For there the shield of the mighty is vilely cast away. The shield of Saul as though he had not been anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan were lovely and pleasant in their lives, and in their death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you in scarlet with other delights, who put on ornaments of gold upon your apparel. How are the mighty fallen in the midst of the battle? O oh, Jonathan! Thou wast slain in thine high places. I am distressed for thee, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant hast thou been unto me. Your love to me was wonderful, passing the love of women. How are the mighty fallen and the weapons of war are perished. Isn't it amazing, the, the heart of David, that this man that was trying to kill him for so many years, and yet David is sincerely broken not over just the passing of Saul in his prime, but in what it meant to the kingdom of God, the reproach that it brought upon the enemies of God. 
and, and what it meant for the people of Israel and the kingdom of God to have Saul gone at this point. And David brings this lamentation. But did you, did you guys notice verse 18? Did you guys maybe like me just read right over that? Like, like kind of like, yeah, that don't matter, you know? Because I read it, and then I reread it, and then I reread it, and I, I said, what in the world does that have to do with anything that's going on right now? You know, why is that there? Why, why, you know, in between verse 17, where it says, here's the lamentation, and verse 19, where the lamentation begins, why is there this little tiny parenthesis that says, oh yeah, by the way, we're going to teach all the kids in Judah how to use the bow. And, and then we're going to back it up by putting it in the book of Jasher too, <laughs> you know, and this is going to be like a thing. And I read that like 17 times. And I'm going, why in the world is that here? Why does David want as his first act of, of anything after the death of Saul be, we're going to make sure that the kids, we're going to make sure that the children of Judah understand the use of the bow. Here's why, I think. Okay, maybe I'm wrong. I get to heaven and I, I could totally be wrong. I didn't write it. I'm just teaching it, all right? But here's what I think. What is the bow? Okay, the bow, the arrow, is something that is shot from a distance. And if you get hit, you don't necessarily know where it came from, especially in a battle. I mean, arrows fly continuously. And if you get hit by an arrow, you don't know where the arrow came from. Also, once you're hit with an arrow and it penetrates your skin, all right, the damage is internal. It gets inside, all right? It gets in your flesh and it, it not only tears apart vital organs and causes you to bleed out, but it also brings with it an infection. And listen, they didn't sanitize the arrowheads before they shot them in the battle. Right, they didn't go like, oh, this could really cause problems. Let's dip this in alcohol before we put it in the quiver. No, they would rub it in the dirt because that would enhance the damage that it would do that even a non-fatal wound could become fatal because of the infection that it would produce inside of a person. And so at the very least, if someone was hit by an arrow, they would be taken out of the battle. Okay, now this is kind of the context spiritually of the bow and the arrow as you go through the Bible. Jacob talked about how the arrow struck Joseph and he was wounded by it. He was never hit by an arrow. Joseph was never stabbed. You know, he was never in a war, but it's talking about what happened to him. There was something that got inside that affected him from the inside and it did something to him. It did something inside of him. We read about it in other places, in Judges chapter 5, verse 11. I don't want to hit all these for time's sake, but here's what you need to hear, is that the bow, the arrow, is one of the favorite weapons of Satan, who is the great enemy of the Christian. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 16. The Apostle Paul says this. He says, above all, taking the shield of faith wherewith you shall be able to quench all of the fiery darts or arrows of the wicked one. Satan's weapon of choice is the bow. And he uses spiritual arrows like what affected Joseph, like what really killed Saul, okay? 
Saul was wounded by the archers in the battle. But long before Saul was wounded by the archers in the battle, he was pierced by Satan's arrow in his heart, in his flesh. What, you ask, are the fiery arrows of the enemy? They're invisible spiritual attacks that are designed to get past the surface, affect us on the inside, and infect us throughout our entire body. Satan's arrows come in the form of thoughts. A thought will come across my mind. It could be a temptation. It could be a temptation to just be anxious about something that's going on in my life. Thoughts come at us all the time from all sorts of places. Some of those thoughts are from God. Some of those thoughts are from life and from processing information. Some of those thoughts come from the devil himself. They could be thoughts. They could be suggestions that come to us from other people. You could just see something in a particular place and be struck by it, drawn to it, and it could turn into a temptation. It could be an arrow from Satan. Sometimes it could be a quick sight, something that you see that triggers something inside of you and it affects you if it gets in. It could be a flash desire that you have from something in your past, something that you have put behind you, but it still has somewhere in you a place of affection and just a flash desire comes. That could be an arrow from Satan. All of these things are arrows that come upon us. And if you don't know the arrows that are used on you specifically, okay, (laughs) then you're in trouble. And if you do know the arrows that are going to come against you, then it's on us, it's on you to avoid those things, okay? So here's the point. Here's why David says this now. He says, listen, Saul died in his prime unnecessarily. He brought reproach upon the kingdom of God. Him and Jonathan were cut off when they shouldn't have been cut off. They were still strong. They were still swift, It ruined the lives of the citizens of Israel who were prospering because of Saul's place in his kingdom. It didn't just affect himself. His potential went unreached. It was a failure of his shield. David says that in verse 21. It says that the shield of the mighty was violently cast away. Saul did not give heed to the fact that there are arrows being launched at him that he needs to be in defense of. And do you know that there are arrows aimed at you right now that are specifically designed according to what you struggle with and where you will fail, where you might fall. And if the shield isn't up and if the bow isn't understood, and if you don't realize what can happen when those triggers take place because of what gets inside, then you are vulnerable to going the way of Saul. And David, in his mind, said, we have got to teach our kids how to defend against the bow. We have got to teach our kids how to hold up the shield. It is on us, parents, David says. He bade them to teach the children of Judah the use of the bow. It's on us, mom and dad, to teach our kids the things that we struggle with, the areas of weakness that we have inherited, that they are inclined to be weak in those areas too, and how to defend against it. 
It is on us, mom and dad, to discretionately, at the right time, share our struggles with our kids. Not in a form of weakness and accountability partners. That's not the idea. But to say, these are the things that hit me when I was a young Israel and Amalek sucker punched me as a kid. And you need to watch out for that sucker punch because you are just as vulnerable as I was at that time. Lest our kids throw the shield away and say, I don't need this. And they think, oh, it's no big deal. And then Amalek takes them out like Amalek took Saul out. It's important. Listen, here's the point as we close. Is that instead of amazing, Saul was almost. That's what David is lamenting over in this lamentation. He should have been amazing. Instead, he was almost. I don't want to be an almost. I don't want to have been almost a good dad. I don't want to have been almost a good husband, almost a good friend, almost a good Christian, almost a good servant of the Lord, almost a good Bible teacher, almost leave a good legacy. I don't want to be an almost. And you've got to understand that there are arrows pointing at us right now that have the potential to make us an almost or maybe even worse than that. Understand this. You may be in a place here tonight that you're discouraged. And maybe you, even like Saul, you say, you know what? I don't need the shield. I don't need to defend. I'm just going to live. I'm tired of fighting. I'm tired of defending. I'm tired of this battle. I'm just going to, I'm just going to, listen, be careful. Be careful that you don't hold up the shield because what God is doing, what he's allowing, what might hurt, what pressure you're under that you want deliverance from, know this that it is here and it will pass. And what God is preparing you for will also come to pass in your life. And it is so essential. Here's why. Because you and I, we are headed towards being established. That's what's going on with David right now. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10, Peter says these words. He says that after, after, you have suffered a while, God will make you perfect. That means complete, not perfect. It means that you'll be completed and he will establish, strengthen, and settle you. That's where we're headed. But in the meantime, we're in a war. We're in a battle. And the shield must be lifted high. And if you don't understand the Amalekite, and if you don't understand the arrow, then you may, like Saul, become an almost. And God forbid that that should happen to us. You say, well, how, how in the world do we slay the Amalekite? How do you mortify this flesh that won't go away? How did Paul find deliverance from the wretched man that was living inside of him that was constantly moving him to do what was wrong? How is it done? Here's how. How did Joshua beat Amalek? Back in Exodus 17, you know how? There was three men on a hill and the one in the middle had his arms raised. And when the man on the hill in the middle with his arms raised had his arms raised, Joshua and the children of Israel prevailed against Amalek down in the valley. 
That's what Paul meant when he said, if you through the Spirit. That's why Paul said in Romans chapter 7, he said that who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ, my Lord, who gives me the victory. That's how Amalek is defeated. He's defeated through Jesus Christ. When did David kill the Amalekite? Isn't it interesting? Did you catch it back in verse 2? It says the third day. It was the third day. He was in Ziklag for two days, but on the third day, the Amalekites showed up and David killed the Amalekites on the third day. Do you get it? It's through Jesus. It's not through your effort. It's not through your pledging. It's not through your promising. It's by bringing God in and then yielding to the power that he gives you in your life. And he will give you power to crush the Amalekite, the traitor within. And here's the hope, is that one day, God will blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. There is a day that we will be delivered and set free from this wretched traitor that lives inside of every one of us. Amen? Father, we just thank you tonight for your word. We pray, Lord, that you would give us wisdom, that you'd give us power in your spirit. We pray that you would give us understanding of these things. Thank you, Lord, for your processes. Thank you, Lord, for the the things that you allow us to struggle with and suffer through. Thank you, Lord, for the things you allow us to reap from the behaviors of our past to teach us of the destruction that could be in the future. And we ask tonight in Jesus' name that you would fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit, that you would help us in the areas where we're weak, and that you would give us hope again to continue to fight even if it's hard. And so, Lord, we pray that you would slay the Amalekite inside every one of us, that you would lift up our shield again and that we would not be almost great. So hear us now in these things. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. Thanks for joining us for the Pastor Nick Santo podcast. To regularly receive these teachings, be sure to subscribe so you can get it automatically when it's released. If you find this material helpful, please share it and help us get the message of Jesus out to others. We also appreciate your feedback, so if you would, leave us a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts, or email us at pastor.nickpc at gmail.com. Until next time, may you continue to love, learn, and live the way of Jesus.